0: Thank you, choir. Father, we ask now that you uh, bless us as we come before you and through your word. And we ask you to encourage our hearts, instruct us through your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear and, Lord, hearts to respond and wills to or do what you would have us to do. We just pray, God, that you would help our church as, Lord, we wind down the summer here soon and begin the fall. We just thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that are coming, the things that you're doing. And Lord, we're just excited about um, the next couple of months. And so we pray that you would be preparing us and be preparing our church, Lord, for all that you have planned for us to do. And uh, Lord, today help this message to be part of that process of continuing to help us see, uh, Lord, your vision For your church in Jesus name I pray amen evangelical Christianity which evangelical is a term that's used to describe Bible believing Protestant faith that believes in the need for personal conversion the new birth believes that Christians once they're saved should grow in holiness increasingly through life it's a belief that wants to obey the gospel call of Christ to spread the good news of Jesus into all of the world and believes that he will come again according to his perfect word, the Bible. And evangelical Christianity has always been a more or less very active movement, especially since the 1700s and coming forward, both people as individual Christians and churches collectively have been a people who, on the whole, are engaged in the world. There have been times where this engagement has been weaker and stronger. It grew weaker in the, I guess, the first several decades of the 20th century with the rise of the fundamentalist movement that pulled back from culture. But evangelicalism has been a movement that engages culture. For example, through Sunday schools, Evangelicals sought to engage the world and minister to the world during the 18th and 19th centuries. You and I often think of Sunday school as a um, a campus um, organization. And we have classrooms, and we come together to study the Bible and fellowship, and hopefully grow through inviting others to entry level Bible study with our group. But Sunday school began as a movement out there, outside of the church, not in the church. Matter of fact, in the early Sunday school movement, those who resisted Sunday school were often pastors and leaders in the churches. A lot of different folks were involved in this, but one person was a man named Robert Rakes. He was British, he was Anglican, he was a man of means. He inherited a publishing company, And he became burdened for the lack of education, the high numbers of people being in prison, particularly young people, and getting into trouble in Great Britain. He lived from 1736 to 1811. And so he was noted for his promotion of Sunday schools, which predated the public schooling in England. And so he began to go out into the streets, and he was ridiculed by certain Christians about Robert Rakes and his kids in the schools or in the streets. But he began to work with them. And so these children often had to work. And so their only day to do this was Sunday. And they also, um, because of, of, of their um, lives, he, he wanted to involve people in them. He believed that the best people to teach them were lay people. And he also believed that their textbook should be the Bible. And so we began to meet with them and uh, their schedule would be after uh, 10 in the morning, they would come at 10 in the morning, stay till 12. Then they'd go home, return at one after reading a lesson, they were to be conducted to church. After church, they were to be employed in repeating the catechism till after five. And then they were dismissed with an injunction to go home without making a noise. So (laughs) that was what they did. But you know that in the years that ensued, they had a million and a quarter children in those Sunday schools. We often regret not having prayer in schools. They took the schools to the children in the streets. And lay people did this, and that number was a huge percentage of the population of children, six through teenagers in England at that time. It was a huge movement that involved, I think about five million people ultimately that were involved in it. And you can read about Robert Rakes. In time, there was a cooperative work that was done as well in our country, like the American Sunday School Union, formed in 1830. And it was formed for the purpose of supplying both rural and urban children with a religious education forbidden in the public schools. You couldn't have religious education. And so they took it to the streets again. Ultimately, this union listed over 3,700 schools, enrolled one-seventh of the nation's population of children between the ages of five and 15. But they did more than instruction. During 1856, the New York Sunday School Union allocated to each church the responsibility to visit homes and organize mission Sunday schools in a destitute area. The next spring, 2,000 visitors working in teams of two blanketed the city of New York from the poorest to the richest streets contacting the unchurched every month, ministering to whatever spiritual or physical need that they found. Well, as we continue our series today, True Lines, in which we're looking at our beliefs from the ground up, we've been talking in the previous two messages about what we believe regarding the church. We're winding down this series. This is message 41. So I'll wind this up with the church, and the last message will be on last things or the end of time." But today I want us to explore a bit more about the church and a message entitled, "The uh, Understanding the Church We Love," And this will be the third message in this part of the series. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter four, and we're going to read verses seven through 16. Ephesians four: seven through 13. Paul writes and says, but to each one of us has been given as Christ apportioned it. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens the last two messages we've looked at the meaning of the word church to be reminded that while the church has an institutional presence like buildings and budgets and staff and location we are not a building we're not a location we're not ultimately an institution but we are a body a people the people god has called out of the world ecclesia He's called us out. That's what the word means. And he has assembled us. And it's one of the other pictures, the assembly of God out of the Old Testament. And the word assembly in Hebrew was translated ecclesia, when the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek. And so we've been called out by God in salvation and assembled in the world as his people. We are assigned that the end times are here and that God who now reigns in us is king is in the process of winding everything up for when christ comes and um, his kingdom fully comes while we're here as the church we talked about last week that we have six purposes as god's people as we live out our lives together we're called centrally to worship that is our ultimate priority fellowship discipleship witness Service, and we deliberately put within our model of church a sixth prayer. And so those are our purposes. We talked about that. This morning, I want us to explore a little bit about the way God is designed for us to function as a community to accomplish his purposes. He gives us a lot of pictures by which to describe how this is to take place. Perhaps the key one though is the image of the body. That is the most used picture of the church in the New Testament. We find that here in Ephesians and in other places, Christ is pictured as working through his body in this way. And so from this image, we can learn and apply several things to our church as we think about the meaning of church and who we are and what we're to be doing. So first of all, as we begin to explore this today, and we'll look at some other passages as well, we can begin to see that our purposes are large and divine. And so here we see Jesus, he is ascending back to heaven, as we see in the book of Acts. Here we see that he who descended now ascends. And as he ascends, it says he carries captivity captive in his train. And I understand that to mean that he emptied out the saved side of Hades, where Lazarus was and those that were there before Christ died. But it also says and he took them to heaven at that point and now when we die we can immediately go to heaven to be with the Lord in our spirits. But it also says in that passage that he also gave gifts to men, gifts to his church. So Christ the head of the church gives us gifts. And so through that we see that his purpose for the church is large and it is divine. And so he has called us to do something. This is telling us that we cannot do apart from divine power. We've been promised that power. We see that in other places in the New Testament. Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But he says, you shall receive what? Power to be my witnesses. Or in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the peoples. Think about this to a group of right jews in the middle east without planes trains automobiles cell phones poor and he tells them you go reach the entire world every every part of the human race with this message go therefore and make disciples of all the peoples baptize them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit teaching them to observe all things whatsoever i've commanded you and what's the last part of it say and what and lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age of the earth. So he is with us as well to empower us. The Spirit empowers us. Christ is with us. But we also see today that he has given us power as well to work and that he has distributed gifts to the church, supernatural abilities he sprinkles through his people. And so God has given us purposes to fulfill, and he's invested his power in the church and the offices that he establishes and the gifts that he gives. And so as you and I think about this today, I think, uh, again, we need to be reminded that what we're doing as God's church is not something that is ordinary, done in the power of human will and ingenuity. We are meant to win people out of the world and send them back into the world And we're to win people and send them back into the world to be the salt, the light, and the leaven of God in the world. And that's a big task. We're to do that as we spread the message, congregations spring up, we become all part of that effort, and we keep keep pushing that agenda out in the world. And as the church gets stronger, she is called truly to be the salt and the light and to impact the world around her. That's a large divine work that we cannot do apart from his power. And he's given that to us in our giftings. You know, that large work is spelled out for us in the Baptist faith and message in two articles, more than two, but in these two, in article 11, evangelism and missions. It says, missionary effort on the part of all rests thus upon a spiritual necessity of a regenerate life. That is, saved people are the ones who can do missions and is expressly and repeatedly commanded in the teachings of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has commanded the preaching of the gospel to all nations. It is the duty of every child of God to seek constantly to win the loss to Christ by verbal witness, undergirded by a Christian lifestyle, and by other methods in harmony with the gospel of Christ. If you don't know what I'm reading out of, it's the Baptist Faith and Message. We've been talking about this for a year. You can pick these up. It's just a summary of, our, of what we believe. But not only do we find that article, we have another one that I'm, I've asked them to put on the screen. It's a longer article, and I want you to read it out loud with me today as well. And this is um, an article, 15, The Christian and the Social Order. And this is, um, this is our large thing about being salt and light, in the world so we're trying to win people to christ but let's read this one together all christians stop just a minute does that include us i hope so all christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of christ supreme in our own lives and in human society Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they're rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. That means we're out doing things trying to be salt and light, but we're witnessing because, right, ultimately we want people to be saved. If you're not saved, you're going to spend eternity separated from God. And so it's, it's best, and people are best helped, the world is best helped, as we see people get saved in the regeneration of the individual. Pick up in the spirit, in the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. Go on to the next one. WE SHOULD WORK TO PROVIDE FOR THE ORPHANED, THE NEEDY, THE ABUSED, THE AGED, THE HELPLESS, AND THE SICK. WE SHOULD SPEAK ON BEHALF OF THE UNBORN AND CONTEND FOR THE SANCTITY OF ALL HUMAN LIFE FROM CONCEPTION TO NATURAL DEATH. EVERY CHRISTIAN, IS THAT US? IT'S ME, YOU TOO. EVERY CHRISTIAN SHOULD SEEK TO BRING INDUSTRY, GOVERNMENT, AND SOCIETY AS A WHOLE UNDER THE SWAY OF THE PRINCIPLES OF RIGHTEOUSNESS, TRUTH, and brotherly love in order to promote these ends christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to christ and his truth that sounds like a pretty large calling doesn't it to affect all of society with the principles of the kingdom of god and we see that obviously as something tied up in the life of who we are as the church this is the place where we get inspiration from each other training vision this should be a beehive of of activity related to to ministry above all things and so we are called We're not called to just, uh, we're called to be something that is different and supernatural in the world in our corporate life as a church. And this is seen through some of the purposes carried out in our daily life as a church, as a new community. And as we live, learn, and love each other, we're somehow manifesting the life of God to the world. We are showing God to the world. Now, we're not an incarnation of Jesus. We need to be very careful about, calling ourselves the hands and feet of Jesus. There's only one incarnation of Jesus, and he rules. And so these are metaphors to talk about him working through us as his people, as we represent him and minister. But somehow, as we live out our corporate life here and as we engage the world, we are helping the world see who the true God is. We're revealing God to the world. That is a big calling. And so I think about a verse in 1 John chapter 4 in verse 12, and I want you to turn with me because I want want to compare it or pull in another verse with it. So 1 John 4 verse 12. John writes, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Now, you hear that phraseology, no one has ever seen God, but if we, the church, love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. John's obviously drawing upon language from his gospel, which came before this letter. And so if you go to John, the gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 18, we hear the same language. And John says, No one has ever seen God. That's what we just read, right? Here's in the gospel. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. Literally, he has exegeted God. And if you go to John chapter 14 and verse nine, you remember Jesus, what he said about himself. in John 14 Philip has said, the Lord, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? John is tying those things together and applying it to the church. And his idea is that somehow as we live together, as God's people work together in this community of supernatural love, seeking to engage the world, The world is shown the divine in a divine way, the life of Christ. God's God's nature, his life is seen through our life and our work. And so what I want you to hear this morning from this, that he's given us gifts, and this is a large and supernatural task we should put to death any notion we have that the church with all of her humanness and imperfections is just an ordinary gathering of people into some organized effort no we're part of a divine manifestation in the world as christ's life pulsates animates and energizes us his people and so we see him giving gifts his power his presence to us to live out the purposes to be a a witness here as we gather as his people in this local church. And as we love each other, we're somehow manifesting the life of Christ. And as we're engaging the world, both here and outside with our gifts, somehow we're showing the world who God is. That's a big task. Every one of us who says we're a follower of Jesus, that is the calling upon our lives. And so again, as I said a couple of weeks ago, you can never say as a Christian I'm going to church because you are the church. And each of us is a part of it, Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Each of us is a part of the body of Jesus. And so it's a huge thing. And then secondly today is that he has gifted us and given us roles. And so because of that, I can never see my Christian experience in the same way. Becoming a follower of Jesus is not some ordinary, private, religious experience. I'm not called to make some simple decision to be saved, learn a few ethical standards by which to live, and then simply go to church, put some money in the offering plate, listen to a sermon, and go my way each week after some religious experience. Unfortunately, that is where Christianity stops for a whole lot of people. But that isn't where it stops in the word of God. And so this whole idea that he has given us gifts reminds us of that. The scripture says God has saved you, all of us, to minister. And every Christian, every part of the body has a ministry to conduct. And so we've read out of Ephesians this morning about that. Andrew read out of the book of Romans about that. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 18 talks about God placing each of us in the body as he desires, and each of us has a role. And 1 Peter chapter 4, which we'll come back to in a moment. And so each of us then has a calling to find out how we're gifted. What are our passions? And we're called to begin to serve the Lord through it. I don't know how many of you have ever been to or watched a symphony perform, perhaps on, on television. But you look at a symphony like the New York Philharmonic, I think that's the picture I have here. When you look at that, that's a pretty large orchestra. It's bigger than ours this morning because we didn't have one. (laughs) We usually do, and a lot of people are on vacation this week. But this orchestra is quite large, isn't it? And the instruments are of various shapes and sizes from small to large. And the word symphony means an agreement of sound. The word concord is applied to it sometimes about what uh, symphony means. It means harmonious or sound together. Like the word synagogue means a, a gathering together to draw together as the Jews did in the sense of worship into the synagogues. And you know when the orchestra plays the piece of music that's before them. Every instrument is important to that piece. And every instrument has to play at the right time, on the right note, in the right key, for the music to sound right, to have concord rather than discord. And every player is focused on bringing his or her gift An instrument. They're focused on the music. When our orchestra's up here, sometimes I watch them, and and they're they're resting at a place, and then it's their moment to play in that piece of music to make it work, and you and I to be blessed through it as we worship the Lord. And so they're focused on that music, and without them and their their role, the orchestra is incomplete, and the symphony never really sounds like a symphony unless every person does their part and plays the role they're called to play. And when you and I think about our lives as believers who are the church, we have to begin to see ourselves not as people attending the symphony in the audience, but rather we have to see ourselves as part of the orchestra on the stage, doing our part with our gifts, under the direction of the conductor, the maestro, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember, we started this part of this series with a passage in Matthew where Peter gives his confession, and Jesus says, and upon this rock, what? I will build my church. And so he's building his church, working through the orchestra as each of us plays our part and does our part in the work with our gifts and our calling god's goal is for all of us to begin to experience our christian life in this way that is his calling upon our lives and then thirdly i want to talk and wrap this up by just covering two big categories today in the word of god this idea of gifts is mentioned as i said in a a number of new testament passages we find gifts and offices mentioned in Ephesians, we find them in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and in 1 Peter. And at times this body imagery is used in a way to remind us that Christ is the head of the church. And then what Paul says in the letter to the Colossians chapter 1 in verse 18, Paul says, he says, and he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. So he is the head of the body, the church. He's over his church, and he is working through this, and he's giving us gifts to be a part of what he is doing. Now, these lists of the gifts that we find, none of them is exhaustive. They're not complete gifts. And I think as the church has grown, as technology changes, life changes, I think God sometimes raises up and gives new gifts to his church to continue to fulfill the mission. But I want to say this to you who are members of our church today. We, we want you to find your gifts. And in the membership class of our church now, that is something that you will at least learn generally through a survey. We want it all to be more than just that, but that's a start. And we want to be a church whose ministry is built around the gifts of our people. Most churches are not organized that way. And before COVID hit, we were well on our way toward this end. Part of the membership book has things in it that I want to develop. Some of you take the membership class and say, what is this? And Jerry, John, and Beverly say, well, that's not fully developed yet. Before COVID hit, on Wednesday night, up in the upstairs of the education room, we were teaching a class on gifts. We had 50 to 60 people in that class and we were moving forward with trying to make this transition and then covid hit and just knocked us off the rails we're you know year and a half two years in now and we're trying to get back on track in a lot of areas we've made a lot of progress we have have a ways to go but this past late fall i think it was november We voted as a church to approve our new policy and procedure manual that um, I wrote a lot of it and several of our different divisions of the church contributed their part to it. And you approve that as a congregation in a church conference, important you come to church conferences. And as you read that document, it moves our church to being one that has a gift-based approach to ministry. Right now, we still are working through our nominating committee. That's the old constitution process to fill positions. It doesn't fill all the positions and places to serve in our church. You don't have to go through that process to be a greeter, usher, some of the other various ways you can plug in. But right now, that's the process through that nominating committee. But again we're going to begin to transition to the other approach and put all the support documents and things we need there. So we'll be developing a ministry of all of our ministries and the gifts that go with those. But for today, I just um, I want to challenge you to begin thinking and praying about your gifts and how, how God may be wanting to, to use you in your life. And I simply want to give it to you today in the simplified version of two large categories that you find in First Peter chapter four. So, if you would turn there with me, and Peter's talking about gifts in First Peter chapter four, verse ten, he says that each of you—I'll wait on you. I hear you. You turning? Some of y'all moving slowly this morning. Big weekend. A lot of things going on. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. Would you would you read these two verses out loud with me? Just so I know you're still awake because we, we're 1130. And so make sure you're still there. You ready? Here we go. Verse 10 and 11 of 1 Peter 4 So it says there are many gifts here, but they fall into two broad categories. And God has something for each of us to do, perhaps in one of those areas. Sometimes there may be overlap, but on the whole, you're probably going to be stronger in one than the other. And so we are, as we develop churches, to be engaging the world at all levels. We read that. We are not an incarnation of Christ as the church. There's only one incarnation, but we have an incarnational presence as we serve Christ both in the church and in the world. And God has a plan for you to pour out your life through these gifts, some more internally in the life of the body and some more externally out there. You know, my gifting is um, pastor, shepherd, teacher. Really, I think it's my strongest gift in and, and administration. I never saw myself doing what I'm doing people who grew up with me probably can't believe he's preaching not because it was a bad guy but just you know and i started out in student ministry and had a a rough six months in that Uh, and then when i went to seminary i was an interim student pastor but god began to do something in my heart and i remember in preaching class my first preaching class dr carl bates was my teacher we called him granny carl he had been twice president of the southern baptist convention he pastored first baptist charlotte for several decades and so after i preached in class he pulled me aside and he said i think um, you have a gift in this area and you should pursue that more so i hadn't thought about pastoral ministry in this sense that moment and i just began to pray god if this is what you want me to do confirm it please and begin to open doors i didn't have a church i was 24 years old and um i began to get calls i didn't know a lot of people but people began to call to ask me to come and preach and fill in and you know for six months almost every sunday and it it may have one or two i was preaching somewhere for the next six months. And uh, God just confirmed that. And I'm saying that to say that God will show you as you seek Him what He wants you to do. And so some of your gifting may be speaking, some may be serving, and it may some be here, some outside of the church. I often think of how God used William Wilberforce, a very small man physically in England, but they said that he went from being a shrimp. TO A whale well WHEN HE SPOKE. AND GOD USED HIM TO LEAD ENGLAND TO EVENTUALLY OUTLAW THE SLAVE TRADE AND THEN SLAVERY ITSELF THROUGH PARLIAMENT. HE WAS VERY INVOLVED IN THE LIFE OF GOD'S PEOPLE ONCE HE WAS SAVED. HE WASN'T SAVED UNTIL A LITTLE FARTHER ALONG, A, a METHODIST uh, LAYMAN WHO HELD THE SAME SEAT AT, um, I THINK Cambridge THAT ISAAC NEWTON HAD HELD. HIS LAST NAME WAS uh, MILLER. Milner, and he led him to Christ. And he began to struggle in his heart of whether God wanted him to be in the the ministry as a pastor. And he struggled with that, and he went to see a pastor named John Newton to seek his counsel. And John Newton was a converted slave trader who was then an Anglican pastor, and he wrote a little song you all know called Amazing Grace. And he went to talk to him. And John Newton told this young man with great gifts and connections in parliament and wealth that he should use his gifts to serve God primarily in the context of government. Now, he was very involved in his church life. They did a lot of different things, he and some of his friends, but God used his gifts of speaking and administration and wisdom to do what we read in that article, and that is to be the salt and light and to bring change in the world where there was evil and darkness. And um, he poured his whole life out to that. And the principle that no person should be enslaved to another. Or to bring it closer to home, I think of a couple I read about named Jim and Connie Phillips at a church in Arkansas that I alluded to a couple of weeks ago. He was at a basketball game between two Christian high school teams. And he said, I found myself thinking, my faith is a spectator sport. I watch it more than I live it. His life was full of good things, but he was restless. And he said his life had become a wash of sameness. So he was making a good living as a CPA, but he went home and talked to his wife and said, I just feel like I want to pour my life out. We need to be doing that as a family. So he told his wife Connie what he was thinking about. They had four kids, so their first step, and I'm not saying everybody has to do that, their first step was they took their kids out of Christian school and put them in a public school so that they could do ministry. And his wife said the first day she picked them up after school, they were all huddled together alone on a bench in front of the school and said they understood the cost at that point of their parents' decision to reach the world with God's love and the cross you sometimes have to bear. They eventually got paired with another couple and um, that couple had public school experience. And so they saw the need not only for mentoring, but also for sexual abstinence teaching. And so they formed a common cause group. That's how their church did it. You would have a common cause that everybody could, you know, rally, I want to do this together. And they taught um, sexual abstinence and a mentoring program called Excel. And they got it into all the public junior high schools in their district and back then they were about to receive federal funding to hire a program director to carry it farther along that's the idea of your gift sometimes being used out there more than in here and so some of our work of service may take place mainly in the gathering of the community that's important because we're to be building up the community itself and encouraging each other showing that love that shows Christ to the world And some of our ministries should be done out there. But I want us always to know that even the smallest of things, even the smallest of things, even the smallest of the instrument are important to God. And I want to close by reading one other passage of Scripture about a, a little woman in the book of Acts chapter 9, I believe. And if you would open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts chapter 9. This last passage reminds us that every one of us has a gift, and the world may not think it's something huge, but in the eyes of God, if it's under the leadership of the head, Jesus, and he's told us to play this part in the orchestra, right? It's important. So would you stand with me as we read this, as we prepare to sing? Acts 9 36 through 42. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. And about that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lida was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in light they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with him. She was ministering to widows. And Peter sent them all out of the room. And he got down on his knees and prayed and turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. This reminds us that uh, who God chose to raise up and put back to work wasn't a preacher. <laughs> it was a woman making garments for poor widows. I don't think that's accidentally in the word of God. And whatever God leads you to do with the giftings he's given you by his spirit, it is important. And I challenge us as a church to move in this direction, find our gifts, and let us do something the world does not see. The, the church needs models of this. And the world needs a church that's committed to this.